So Curtis Sliwa, your next host, he'll be happy to know I successfully deep-fried two turkeys yesterday out in Bucolic, New Jersey. My entire neighborhood smelled like deep-fried turkeys, and we all loved it. Here's Curtis and Nancy Sliwa. Now, hold on a second, James Flippin. Uh, Bloomfield is outside of Newark, right? That's right. I've been to Bloomfield many times. In fact, so many people were born and raised right on Bloomfield Ave, yep. North Ward in Newark. Went to St. Lucie's Parish, got baptized, uh, confirmation, marriage, or grew up uh, in the surrounding neighborhood. Uh, they then migrated to Bloomfield. They don't strike me as hillbillies. What you did yesterday, which I think you said is part of your tradition, is... How did you prepare your Thanksgiving Day turkey? So on Wednesday night, we did the dry rub with the garlic, with the thyme, with the paprika, with the cayenne pepper, rubbing it all around the turkey, getting is it underneath like the a, skin. Is this like a massage, you know, a exactly. deep massage of the like turkey? A, like yeah. a massage of the turkey, but with the seasonings. How, how many pounds? How many pounds? Each, each, po- uh, each turkey was 11 and a half pounds. Each turkey? How many of them? I, t- I deep fried two of them. I had 19 people at my house yesterday. You deep fried in the peanut oil. You have a big vat over a big burner. You set it up on the driveway with a propane tank hooked up to it. It takes about an hour and 15 minutes for the oil to get to the temperature you need. And then it only takes 45 minutes for the bird to fry. It's Do you tremendous. know how many fires each year are the result of deep frying I, turkeys in America? I am aware of that, yes. That's what hillbillies do. <laughs> what the hell? You're not a hillbilly. You know, I mean, what do you go hillbilly hand fishing too in the Passaic River? <laughs> my father did live in West Virginia for about seven or oh, eight years. Oh, okay, so. so that answers it. <laughs> so you had over how many people? We had nineteen people at the house yesterday. Nineteen people. Yep. Oh my God! It was great. It was awesome. Oh. They were hanging from the rafters. And so, in addition to this deep fried two turkeys, eleven pounders, right? What were the side orders? You had. Turnips, you had mashed potatoes, you had green bean casserole, you had squash casserole, you had corn, you had cauliflower, and did you have that lime green jello that wasps like yourself? We didn't love have, to have the lime green jello, but we did have the cranberry sauce. Thank oh, see, you. yeah, the cranberry in the can, in right? the can. Yeah, I, I always want. Why would people want cranberry sauce out of a can? I don't know. People love it, though. They, my, my one cousin, she can't get enough of it. You have to have three cans in order for her to make sure she gets them. The, You're kidding. No, so, no. She's a hillbilly, too. I guess so. I mean, she's from out in, like, you know, Sussex County, northwest oh, well, Jersey. Oh, yes, so West Jersey. You are trending. They're, <laughs> they're like, well, lots of wild turkeys out there. Never mind. Right. And a lot of people drinking wild turkey, that, too. That, while they're also pro- true. While they're deep frying their turkey. Yes. Wow, who knew that our news guy, James Flippin, <laughs> was a hillbilly news guy? New York's talk station with the king of New York. Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC and Curtis Lewa.
Ah, you can tell that Nancy Slee was in the house. This is the musical choice of the Sliwa household. It's called Electronic Dance Music. This selection, Lean On by DJ Snake. And I noticed that uh, we have uh, our board operator here who is, like, flummoxed by our choices of electronic dance music. And notice, uh, Nancy, describe who is on the window sills on the outside. There's a, a crew of pigeons. I think they might be from our neighborhood. That's right. There are a dozen pigeons. And a lot of people don't realize they accompany me when I leave in the wee hours of the morning. They follow me, but they're not into the subway when I take the subway over here. Okay, so they're not fair beaters. They're not fear beaters. Uh, they are flying over east and then figuring out that I'm probably going to be emerging in and around WABC because they just they just congregate here. And it drives people, some people, nuts because they hate these uh, pigeons. In fact, uh, Andrew Giuliani's father, Rudy, uh, sort of called them at one time, rats with wings, but recently saved the pigeon on his window ledge and brought him to that great organization that's right on the corner where we live. Um, I think Wild Bird Fund. Yeah, right on Columbus yeah. Avenue, a really great organization. They'll take any bird who is damaged in any way and try to bring it back uh, to where it's fully functional. I remember one time around this uh, time of year, we had found a Canada goose who was seriously damaged. I mean, he was on death's door. It was right outside of the, what was that, Fresh Connect, uh, uh, f- well, that delivery service that delivers the food. Fresh Connect, right? Yeah, it was a very industrial um, neighborhood. It was Hunts Point. Hunts, yeah. uh, Hunts Point, South Bronx, and it had a noose around its head. Apparently somebody had tried to gather the goose in, the goose resisted, and was on its last legs. You were there with me and Anthony. We brought it into a box. We brought it to that organization right there on Columbus Avenue. The name again? Um, Wild Bird Fund. Wild Bird Fund. They nursed this Canada goose back to health, released it into Prospect Park, the lake, and named it Curtis. So if you happen to see a Canada goose, or they call them Canada geese, pooping around your area, just call out Curtis. Who knows? It might have been that bird that was saved a long time ago by Nancy and Anthony and yours truly. Now, before we get into an animal welfare update, because that's what we're known for here at WABC. Also, yesterday, Nancy, the announcement that we will now have a syndicated national animal welfare show. With the Mothership Connection being WABC, uh, both uh, John Katsimatidis, our owner-operator, and uh, Chad Lopez, the president of Red Apple Media, our parent company, have decided they're going to put it in syndication so the entire nation can benefit from it. There are some subjects you decided you want to discuss that were non-animal related, but they are very pertinent to the news cycle of the day. What was the first story about fare evasion you wanted to bring to our attention? Well, the, the title is a robotic voice at Path Station warns fare beaters of a violation. So, um, you know, this is about the, the Path System, which apparently has a long-standing flaw 
uh, they're aware of where, you know, people can enter without paying. And it accounts for they don't know how many people and how much money, but apparently 90 percent of the fare evasion occurs here. So they still haven't figured it out. But now their their stellar plan to avoid this is they have a warning system. So there's going to be a voice yelling at you should you try and <laughs> not pay the fare. <laughs> <laughs> so now if uh, those of you who've never taken the path train, uh, there are two different uh, aspects of it. You could take it at 33rd Street, Herald Square, a block away from uh, Macy's, and you can take it going out to Jersey City, Journal Square, or out to Newark, last stop. Or you can take it from the link to the World Trade Center. Goes to Exchange Place, which is the mini Wall Street in Jersey City, Grove Street, which is where City Hall is. Used to be a tough inner city area. A lot of Puerto Ricans now, it's all hipsters and millennials. Journal Square, and then eventually out to Newark. And you are correct. The times that I've had to get out to Newark or Jersey City, I always take paths. Hoboken, likewise, I take paths. And I have oftentimes seen people just basically bogart the fare. Just, I'm not paying the fare. They just, boom, they either go under the turnstile or over the turnstile. Yeah, but now, so the problem is this this system of the voice, right? So it has a hierarchy. So the first thing, it doesn't want to be presumptive. So it says pay first, like very polite, you know, request. And then if you try to go again and it's detected that you haven't paid, then it says violation. You did not pay. And then these red lights start going off. The only problem is it also locks the turnstile for a long period of time, like something like 20 minutes. So now what they have is people who've legitimately paid and they can't get through the turnstile. So they're having to hop the system to get into the system. Now, how crazy is that? Extremely. Uh, again, instead of having enforcement, for instance, let's say you had a Port Authority police officer assigned in and around the turnstiles. It's costly. A Port Authority police officer gets paid well, a lot of benefit package. But in the long run, it's well worth it, if nothing more than the security that people feel when they're coming in to take the Port Authority train. I mean, train. and to your point, it, it makes so much sense because... You do want to be able to employ people. I mean, clearly there's a shortage of jobs. And then it's not that you don't have the money because you've spent millions on the system. You'll continue to spend millions and you're losing millions. So what's the difference? Why don't you just employ actual people? They're they're trying all kinds of technological tricks. It's like um, in New York City, Eric Adams, the mayor, instead of spending money on human cops, now has spent money on Robbie Robot there at the Times Square station that I've done now two videos making fun of. Because supposedly the robot is going to go on patrol, but it's guarded by two police officers at all times. It's a diva robot. It has security. Exactly. So that it won't be vandalized, graffitied, or pushed into a train in the oncoming track. apparently it gets nervous when people start taking selfies with it, so that's a problem too. Exactly. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but now we want to flip from uh, that and the fare evasion of the Port Authority system going into New Jersey, the fare evasion on the buses in New York City. Forty percent of the people don't pay. Fifteen uh, percent of the subway riders don't pay to something that's more sports oriented that affects the way our quality of life is. Yeah. So this is a study done, which I'm sure isn't uh, isn't news to most people who are sports fans, but. It has to do with the fact that people are more prone to violence and irrational behavior after their favorite sports team loses. So, 
you know, during this, the holiday times, I know sports is a big thing. People watch them a lot. But, it, you know, this study is going through the thought process and then going to the, you know, saying it equates in many ways to the uh, sort of extreme fanaticism that you also find in things like politics and identity. But I thought the political sort of fanaticism also coupled with sport, you can see so many similarities in that. No, no doubt. And in fact, to our board operator, Diego, I pointed out to him in the middle of World Cup, which I hate, I loathe, I despise soccer, that fake, phony, fraudulent football. They spell with a U, kickball, kickball. That upon the loss of the Mexican national team in Qatar, a Mexican, I believe it was Mexico City, took a knife to his 72-inch plasma big screen color television that was broadcasting the results and stabbed it repeatedly, Diego. Stabbed it over and over. Over a stupid, stupid soccer game. He destroyed his 72-inch plasma television. I mean, it's but that's, that's the whole point of this study. Cognitively, it's showing that you start lapsing in judgment and rationality when you have the extreme of a sports team loss. And now that betting is so prevalent. Oh. That it's not just uh, the underground betting system that I grew up with, organized crime with wire rooms and guys who would come around, you know, to collect uh, on the numbers, but also on sports action. Now it's FanDuel. You could gamble anywhere legally. People watch sports more so not for the enjoyment of the game, but for almost moment by moment in the game. Will that go five yards? Will that kick go 40 yards? Uh, who actually won the coin toss, they'll be betting on that. Every aspect, it's like they bisect and dissect the game. You can't even enjoy the game See, any longer. that's the worst thing when people bet on the coin toss, because if you don't win, there's no point to watch the rest of the game. It's just a exactly, horrible day. Exactly, but that's what it's <laughs> become. So what you're saying is the rage, and it's generally men, but not limited to men, the rage of the macho, maniacal man with high levels of testosterone crashing through their cranium is exacerbated by sports and politics. Increasing the probability to fall into disruptive or violent behavior. I'll buy that. This is science talking. Well, that's that's sports and that's politics because that's what it's uh, definitely become. But up next, we want to discuss some aspects of uh, our animal welfare hour on Sunday nights, 10 to 11, that will soon be a nationally syndicated show here at WABC across the nation. And a movie that our listeners introduced me to that I had never seen, and they were shocked that I had never seen The Incident, a 1967 American crime thriller on the subways in the Bronx involving the first acting performance of... I'm trying to remember. Martin Sheen? That's right, Martin Sheen. Although he didn't steal the show. He in no way, shape, or form stole the show. As I watched it yesterday with you for the very first time, Tony Musante as Joe Ferrone, later to play Toma on TV. One year, successful TV program on ABC, and he said, I'm only doing it one year. And from that, Beretta was created. This guy should have won the Academy Award. Yeah. You know how Joker was on that subway scene? Yes. Right? Joker, Joaquin Phoenix. This is better than Joker. Yes. I mean, I'm surprised I had never heard about this movie before or seen this movie before, and it's all about the subways. 
of New York City. You want to keep it right here, live and local programming throughout the holiday season, exclusively here on WABC. The competition has best stuff, which is really worst stuff. We don't believe in that. And boy, I did something yesterday in my 69th year of existence that to me, surprise, 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 one of the greatest movies I've ever seen of all time. No one knows New York better. The founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. And you can't compete against that. On 77 WABC. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC and Curtis Lewa. Press Diego aboard our parade to the sound of Jonas Blue Fast Car. Electronic dance music. It is so good. It is the music of the Sliwa household. And the music that I actually introduced on WABC a while ago when people were wondering, what is that? Electronic dance music. So good, so good. A lot of people, Nancy, wonder how a guy close to 70, that's me, out of all the different musical genres you hear here on WABC, with Vinnie Madugno, with Cousin Brucie, Tony Orlando without Dawn, Joe Piscopo and the Sinatra two-hour extravaganza, how out of all of that, I can end up being a devotee of electronic music. Met you, Nancy, not knowing that you also were a devotee of electronic music. I think um, it explains your plethora of energy. Let me tell you something. I love this music. I can't get enough. you like a whirling dervish. And the music is a mood elevator. A lot of people like uh, Diego, they describe me as being grumpy. James Flippin, the news guy... They explain, they say, look out, it's Sliwa in the house. The grump is here. You know, he's always looking at things negatively. As opposed to Ernie Anastas, Mr. Sunshine, Ernie Anastas, everything is positive. With Curtis Sliwa, everything is negative. And then all you got to do is just play a little electronic dance music. And my mood is elevated. I don't need ecstasy or molly or any drugs or alcohol. It's the music. And what would have been the likelihood that when we met years ago, that we would have had that in common? It depends when you were meeting me, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) But truly, we met in Central Park. That's true. People don't realize that I had no idea who you were. You had met me in Central Park while we were running patrols for the Guardian Angels. You sent me an email. Yes. Because you realized that I was not looking good. Mm Mm-hmm. You suggested holistic and homeopathic remedies. I was in the throes of Crohn's disease at the time. Yeah. And that, that's how we got together. Yeah, and then you told me, come meet me at 10 p.m. And I say, wait, what? 
Yeah, I figured you, like a setup. I figured it was a it was a nice opportunity for the hit guys to come use a woman as a lure and then finally get me and pour some more hollow point bullets into yeah, me. Yeah, but then I just realized that's how you are all the time. Yeah, that's the way I am all the time. But anyway, <laughs> let's deal with what is your focus, animal welfare. And the big story over the weekend leading into Thanksgiving and God, that god awful story of James Flippin of how he was doing the hillbilly preparation of his turkeys there, boiling them in, in what was that, peanut peanut oil? Anyway, disgusting. But they're saying now that there is a dearth of wild turkeys throughout the United States. And i got to tell you, Nancy, as you know, I've spent a lot of time in Staten Island uh, of late battling the illegal alien invasion out there. Wherever I'm, I'm out there, I'm seeing more turkeys than I've ever seen before. These are wild turkeys roaming around. Yeah, I think it's a, the overall um, like percentage in the United States is supposedly it's a big fifteen percent, like one million uh, in number has dropped wild turkeys two thousand four two thousand fourteen. Um, you know, and the the usual list of uh, possible you know uh, reasons: climate change. I mean, that's that's always a great one. Hunting disease. You know, but habitat loss, right? So that's a big one. And they're glossing over a little bit of this disease part of it. So so supposedly, out of all of the turkeys that everyone just purchased, okay, for their Thanksgiving and maybe even the rest of their holidays, those ones are fine. So they'll they'll sell those to us. But for some reason... Right, the but those, outside, are, those are farm turkeys. Yeah, right? but I mean, but I guess the presumption is if they're dropping on the outside, the wild turkeys, like, how do you know they're not dropping on the inside and selling them anyway? So there's still a question mark. Like, if they're not... If they're not healthy overall, maybe so. Again, and we and we've done a lot of stories, obviously, with the the different cullings that they've done. Nice way of saying just euthanizing them all at these, you know, farm fresh places. So there's clearly a bird flu that's going on in the wild and in domesticated animals, and now it's explaining large groups of populations of birds disappearing. Yeah, but I got to tell you, at least in our area. I've never seen so many wild turkeys before in my life, which I don't have a problem with. I've tried to actually herd them out of the streets, Highland Boulevard. I was such a schmuck. I jumped out of a car. I thought they were going to get hit by the incoming traffic on Staten Island. And the people there, the locals here, Curtis, they, they wait for the green light. They cross over. <laughs> they, 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 they make this route all the time from Father Capadonna Boulevard all the way into Mid-Island. And in back, they were everywhere. Yeah, I mean, and they they clearly serve a purpose out there. You know, we've had uh, people call in before speaking about um, the turkey vultures in particular. And, you know, they have this ability to uh, basically, you know, their smelling is the best of any in the animal of, in the animal kingdom. So if their purpose is if anything is dying, you know, decomposing, they take care of it. And they're right on it. So, I mean, we've had people attest to the fact. So they're they're accomplishing what they're supposed to accomplish. And, you know, obviously people are accustomed to them. So that's a a great example of people living with nature as they should. Last Sunday, we received more calls about turkey vultures and vultures than almost any other subject. Everybody was an expert because they have turkey vultures in their neighborhood that sometimes fly 10,000 feet above the ground and can find prey that are not alive. That's the buzzard. The buzzards go after the actual live prey. They go after dead carcasses. So when a deer, let's say, gets hit by a car and dies, 
they will immediately consume the carcass so it doesn't become a more of a problem in the community because you have an exposed carcass and then can uh, create other problems. And to your point, they're able to stay so far in the air. Like I was researching them, and they're like actually quite incredible creatures. They expend virtually no energy whatsoever to be in a free-floating state in the sky all the time. It's like they're like the surfers of the air. They're riding the, the breezes and the changes in thermal temperature. I mean, they're pretty much just floating on the air, and the minute they, they detect something, they can descend to the earth to your point, 10,000 feet, pick it up, and go back. Now, you grew up in Bohemia, out in Suffolk County. I, I would call it a quasi-suburban rural area. Yes. I grew up in Canarsie, Brooklyn, uh, urban area. And yet I had never been exposed to turkey vultures or vultures. I don't think you had. No. We learned something from last night's animal welfare program for the very first time. Uh, in my close to 70 years and however old you are, because we still don't know how old you are, Nancy. You're like Frank uh, Morano, the Mameluke and Enigma. You won't give your, 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 your date of birth away, your age away, and neither will he. But yesterday, can you believe this? I'm considered the expert on subways and subway crime, right? I'm constantly referring people to the cult classic, The Warriors. If you want to know about what the subways were like in the 70s with the gangs, you got to go out and get the cult classic by Paramount, The Warriors. Great movie. Depicts pretty much what what it was like with a lot of embellishments, but it gives you a, a good idea of the time that I started The Guardian Angels. The Warriors movie came out on February 8th, 1979. I launched the Guardian Angels February 13th in 1979. And I launched them from the Fordham Road station of the number four train, which had been named the Muggers Express. This was a time in which there were no uniformed police officers assigned to the moving subway trains from 7 at night to 5 in the morning. That's the off-peak hours because of all the cutbacks, the same kind of cutbacks we're talking about now. Caller after caller in the the best side of the other side of midnight that I begin tonight, 12 midnight to 6, so nice, I do it twice, Sunday morning, 12 midnight to 6, would say, Curtis, have you ever seen the movie The Incident? No. You got to see it. It's the best subway movie ever. I'm figuring they're exaggerating. You know, they're, they're just, no, nah, can't be. I would have seen it or I would have heard about it. Probably a dozen callers. And then finally yesterday, you said, after we went out for our Thanksgiving lunch after doing the program, you said, well, let's look at a movie. We had two choices, right? My first choice. Was, yeah, we had two choices of Curtis, yes. Right, two choices. Although I gave you the choice and you couldn't come up uh, with a decision. So he says. Joaquin Phoenix in the new Napoleon movie. Yes. And you told me it's only in the theaters. It's just, yeah, it just came out the day before. And then I finally said, well, let's finally look at that movie recommended to us by the many callers, 1967, The Incident, which was the film debut of... Uh, Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. This very first movie, and it's on the subways. And I'm looking at it, and it's in black and white. And I was, like, bowled away from the beginning... To the end, this may well have been the greatest movie that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I've seen a lot of good movies. Done purposefully in black and white to give the feeling of the subways in the 50s and the 60s. 
In fact, they wouldn't let them film in the subway system, the MTA. They wouldn't give them the, the right to film. So they had to hide a camera in a cardboard box to give you the scenes of the train that were filmed in and around the Bronx section of the now-demolished 3rd Avenue line. And it was about the number four train, the very line (laughs) that I started the Guardian Angels on. Every scene was absolutely incredible. And I saw this guy who I had to say should have won the Academy Award, Tony Musante as Joe Ferrone. He was good. He was good. He was so psychotic. Yeah. Remember in the um, in the movie with Joaquin Felix, uh, Felix. Uh, the Joker? Yes, yes, yes. Where he's in that subway scene? Yeah, yes. Just imagine this guy like that in every scene of the movie from beginning to end. Yeah, he was very intense. Yeah. And each scene you probably couldn't do nowadays in the movies because it was so politically incorrect. Well, actually, and it was it was done really well because it starts off with like everyone. Uh, like the individual couples or groups, whatever you want to call them, getting on the train. And it's like everyone's at the tipping point of some crisis in their personal life, their job, their marriage. And for some reason, they've all decided to get on this train at 2.30 in the morning because <laughs> that makes sense. And it's like just disaster ensues once these two people get on and they just start tormenting the riders. Yes, and they're on their way to uh, Grand Central uh, where they all had separate business. But the first couple to get on... Is you, you see, wow! Hold on, from from the Johnny Carson days, oh, Ed, Ed McMahon, McMahon yeah, <laughs> played a great role, like this blue collar working class guy with his daughter. Yeah, like the very traditional, um, you know, like stern sort of husband, like I'm bringing home the money, and you know, I got a lot of pressure on me type thing. And they're going to go out to <laughs> Flushing, and the wife says, "Let's take the cab." And he thinks, "What? We're not made of money. Don't get comfortable, girl." That's right. So four train <laughs> at Mashula Parkway. Then at Bedford Park Boulevard by Lehman College, there's the uh, teenage virgin, Alice, who meets the sexually aggressive Tony, who's trying to come on to her. And they fit the stereotype at that time. And then at Burnside Avenue, you have uh, the moneyed Muriel Purvis, uh, who's with her mousy husband, remember? Oh, yeah, she actually berates them while they're on the, the subway platform waiting for the train because... Uh, he's not living up to, to her standards. Right. Kingsbridge Road, <laughs> you had the Jewish couple, Bertha and Sam Beckerman, who are like classic, you yeah. know, at each other's case. I said, man, this is... And then you had the black couple that gets on, two great actors and actresses uh, who get on at Mount Eden on the four train, and he's like all angry at all white people, and she's trying to calm him down and... It's just classic. That was Ruby D and Brock Peters. Then you had the gay guy gets on, referred to as being gay. Yeah, yeah. The the two white crazy guys drop the end bomb over and over at Brock Peters over and over, and it's like Clockwork Orange before there was Clockwork Orange. You know who who I thought did um like incredibly well too? Uh, Bo Bridges. Yeah, right? Bo Bridges. He was a young yeah. He was playing like a young um, army, you know, stationed and uh, you know taking a leave of absence 
Uh, like with, with, with the broken arm. Yeah, I mean, really fantastic. Like, I mean, he played that, um, you know, sort of, uh, what do you call it, like Midwest <laughs> K2T. Yeah, okay. It's like Oklahoma, yeah. where Mickey Mantle came from. He yeah. had that Mickey Mantle look. Yeah, very, uh, you know, just like, you know, yeah, starry eyes, not really know what's going on. But it was, it was a great movie. And, and what's great is it ends at 42nd Street, which is how most people think of it today, like with some homeless guy just falling off the subway station <laughs> after murder happened. Exactly. Now think of it. <laughs> Bo Bridges, Ruby D, Jack Guilford, Ed McMahon, Gary Merrill, Donna Mills, Brock Peters, Thelma Ritter, Jane Sterling, in his movie debut, crazy, out of his mind, Martin Sheen. No, not his son, Charlie Sheen. Martin Sheen and Tony Musante as Joe Ferrone, who should have gotten an Academy Award performance in, for this. Yeah, he was incredible. Like, very dark, dreary, and, you know, like, the psychotic character, to your point. I am declaring this the greatest movie of all time. Move over, Raging Bull, also about the Bronx, because that's where Jake LaMotta came out of. By the way, for everybody out there, he was born a Jew. I know many of you Italians out there, what are you talking about? His mother was Jewish. But it was about the Bronx. Superseding superseding Raging Bull, The Incident, the 1967 black and white film. I want to thank our many listeners. In fact, when I come back tonight, the other side, the best side of the other side of midnight, I'm actually going to critique each scene. I'm going to play cuts of it. I want to recount Price and Waterhouse, whatever count they had for the Academy Award in 1967, I want to give it posthumously. Is that the word? Yes, posthumously. Posthumously, yes. posthumously to Tony Musanti as Joe Ferrone, who actually died in 1977 from oral surgery. We almost never hear of that. Oh, you're not going to want to miss it tonight. I can't believe in almost 70 years in my existence... A movie about the subways, which is where I made my bones, Nancy. On the actual train. Four. The incident. <laughs> all the specs were there. Like I remember as a little kid. If there's one movie you got to see, forget Napoleon with Joaquin Phoenix. You got to see The Incident. It is absolutely the greatest movie I have ever seen in my lifetime. No one knows New York better. The founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. And you can't compete against that. On 77 WABC. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC and Curtis Lewa. dance music, which is the choice of the Sliwa household. Both Nancy, unbeknownst to me when I first met her, was a devotee of electronic music, and I certainly was. One of the many reasons we came together. But this is not the kind of music you generally hear in radio, to be honest. This is a song by Roses. And... um, I, I think it, it definitely crosses the generational lines. People just assume, oh, it's hipsters and millennials, you know, like Diego, the lost generation. They're like 
like Meany, our program director, you know, they're lost. They're lost out there. But one thing they have good going for them is electronic dance music. Tonight, you're not going to want to miss it. The other side of midnight, the better side of the other side of midnight, I'm going to critique three guys who said they'd like to run for mayor. One who says he's running re-election, Eric Adams. Mm-hmm. I could be his opponent, uh-huh. hit with a sexual assault charge. Oh, boy. Andrew Evilize Cuomo, who has escaped to, of all places, Sicily, oh, to Corleone, like Michael Corleone, with his three daughters. Uh-huh. He's been hit with a sexual assault uh-huh. uh, civil lawsuit. And the Mameluke of all Mamelukes before Frank Marano was a Mameluke, Scott Stringer. Oh, God. <laughs> who thought he was going to be the future mayor, wants to run for mayor again. He does? Oh, no. And he was hit, remember, with a sexual harassment assault charge by a campaign uh, attache. Wow, they are. And now he's suing her. Yeah, they're really, they're really dipping the bottom of the barrel. Oh, there. no, it's going to be great. Oh, it's going to be absolutely great. But uh, we got to talk about Central Park mm-hmm. because the one story you covered on the Animal Welfare Hour, which uh, is now going to be nationally syndicated across the nation by John Katsimatidis, and our parent company, Red Apple Media, our president, Chad Lopez. You can hear it Sunday nights, 10 to 11. It's all about animal welfare issues. If you miss it live and local, you can hear it on the podcast. Is the story of Flacco, the exotic owl who had escaped Central Park, the zoo, because somebody had uh, clipped the netting that held him in his caged area. And remember all the birders who are out there wearing their safari hats and their shorts and their binoculars going, whoop-a-woo, whoop-a-woo. I think it was just you. So terrified that Flacco, because he had always been in captivity, would never be able to survive. He was Mm hand-fed. And give us the odyssey of Flacco ever since. Well, Flacco was initially hanging around Central Park for a long time and then made uh, his way down to the Lower East Side. Now, the, the, they're surmising that it's because Flacco was looking for a mate and was unsuccessful in the east side. So now he's back in the park. But I have a feeling it has something to do with all the cameras on him all the time. Like, I, I think that's probably making it tough to, to have a little romantic moment with a, with a fellow owl. It's uh, the paparazzi out there. And now, apparently, there's some disgruntled uh, uh, tenement uh, apartment uh, renter who claims that Flacco, while perched on the air conditioning unit, was urinating on the unit. I mean, come on. I mean, you're in New York City. You have to deal with things like that. Exactly, exactly. Flacco forever, (laughs) flying around looking for a mate. As you know, as a child, that was my favorite animal of all time, the owl, because the owl is nocturnal. I'm nocturnal, as many of you are who listen to the best side of the other side of midnight with me, Saturday and Sunday. And then we have the story of our owner-operated John Katsimatidis trying to get on loan from the Red Chinese, Chinese panda bears, to come into the Central Park Zoo. That has never been done. Now, he thinks it can attract 10 million tourists into New York City each and every year. Well, g- given that Flacco escaped, there there might be concern about security in the Central Park Zoo, so <laughs> you, you, you're going to have to keep an eye on that right there. But as I said to John, you know, they, the, the panda bears eat bamboo. That's their native dish. Yeah. Real bamboo. So you would have to basically bring in from Southeast Asia 
Lots of bamboo well, for them to eat. Bamboo's great because it's invasive. So if you just plant a few of them, it'll just take over an area. So that's actually that's a plus. So we should start planting it in Central Park there. I, I would love to see bamboo <laughs> in Central Park. <laughs> I hate to bust uh, our owner's bubble, John Katzmatidis, but the condition of New York City now with all the illegal aliens, with the garbage, with the lack of police, with a budget that is going to crash and put us on the brink of fiscally being insolvent. I don't think it's panda bears that are going to attract all the tourists into New York City. I think uh, a lot more uniformed police officers, less garbage in the street, less rats, less illegal aliens would probably do that. And then people would be more than happy to come into Central Park and maybe we can make a compromise with John. So panda bears and police uniforms. I got it. Right. And then we get rid of the horse-drawn carriages and replace them with motorized carriages, which third-world countries are doing now. And then I think we got a deal. All right. We got a deal. And remember, to all of you out there who think of the city pigeon as rats with wings, if I get elected mayor... That's going to become our official bird on the flag. I'm actually going to change right. it to the pigeon of New York City. They are the mascot. See, we don't just take positions that everyone is in agreement with. We take positions that many of you loathe, despise, you hate. As our live and local radio continues, up next, we pass the baton off to Lieutenant Colonel Greg Kelly right here on WABC. <laughs> 